everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You are listening to episode number 18. This is your host, Natasha Bajima, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode on August 19, 2018. First off, a brief personal update, Project Gecko. I got my um, manuscript back from my editor on Project Gecko, and I'm working through the edits. I expect it will be available as an ebook on Kobo in September, so please stay tuned. All right, let's talk tech. So one emerging technology topic that fascinates me is the use of nanotechnology and synthetic biology to create new materials that do amazing things. In some ways, science fiction of DC Comics superheroes and Marvel's Avengers is becoming science reality. This is a theme I address in Project Gecko, where the Pentagon is seeking to leverage the capabilities offered by these new materials for its next generation battlesuit. I hope you read my book. It's coming out in September. So the first two headlines uh, for this week are about spider silk. Um, Yes, the same stuff Spider-Man uses to swing from building to building. The first article is Move Over Spider-Man. Spider silk can be used to build armor and repair nerves. This was published on July 28 at digitaltrends.com. The second article is Scientists Just Created Spilkworms That Spin Super Strong Spider Silk, published on August 8 at sciencealert.com. Okay, so what is spider silk? Well, it is the protein produced by spiders to create their webs and drag lines. Textiles made from spider silk are lighter and tougher than Kevlar and also extremely flexible, but Um, Textiles don't melt like nylon. Um, Spider silk can be used for body armor, suture, skin grafts, so much more. Scientists think that spider silk could even be used to battle cancer. Um, Scientists have been interested in producing spider silk since the 1700s, so this is the holy grail in some ways. Researchers were first able to clone a spider silk gene in 1990, so this has been a long pursuit and it's still underway. If it could be produced at a mass scale, this would be incredibly valuable material for so many reasons. So how to make it? Well, spiders produce it. Um, They produce a tiny amount of silk for their own needs to make their webs and also um, get to places. And production is difficult to scale up, both due to the the volume that they produce, but also some unique characteristics of spiders. Um, They're territorial, and they don't get along well with other spiders, and they eat each other if they get really pissed off. So you can't have a lot of spiders together producing silk. It doesn't work out very well. For this reason, scientists have been looking for other organisms to produce the silk. They've tried bacteria, yeast, plants, silkworms, and even goats. So how does that work with goats? The U.S. Army funded research at Utah State University back in 2010 to produce spider silk in goat's milk. And this addresses the problem that spiders produce tiny amounts, difficult to scale up, so why not use goats? So by splicing genes from orb-weaving spiders and inserting those genes into goats, the goats produce this protein in their milk. A single goat produces about one ounce of protein per milking session, and this yields thousands of yards of spider silk thread. Um, The milk proteins are separated, purified, freeze 
dried and turned into a powder. This powder is then spun into a fiber to make textiles. And there are companies who are making textiles out of um, spider silk. So um, how does that work? Well, scientists genetically modify organisms to produce the protein. Unfortunately, these proteins have been shorter and simpler than the spider's own protein. And we quite, haven't quite gotten to kind of the, the goal, which is to synthesize the toughest um, spider silk made by spiders. They, they make different types of silk, um, a different type for the webs, a different type for the drag line that spiders hang, hang from. Well, it's the drag line silk that is the strongest and um, it incorporates several different types of silk proteins. Scientists have um, recently produced super strong spider silk using silkworms. So that's the second article. So what are silkworms? A silkworm is a caterpillar of the silkworm moth that produces silk. Yes, that's the silk that, that we wear in textiles. They, it, they spin the silk, when they spin their cocoons to transition from a caterpillar to a moth, they produce this silk. And so a team of scientists got together and they edited the silkworm genes so that it produces the silk of a golden orb weaver spider instead of the regular silkworm silk. So the great thing about silkworms, of course, is that they're peaceful, unlike spiders. So we can actually um, put a bunch of them together and produce the silk. Um, the other benefit is that the silk produced does not require further processing. So remember when I was talking about the goats, you have to take it out of the milk, you have to freeze dry it, turn it into a powder, spin it into a, a thread, and then use it in textiles. As I mentioned, there are some commercial products that are already being made from spider silk, but you would expect they're expensive because we haven't quite gotten to mass production yet. So Adidas has come out with a shoe made of spider silk. I don't think it's yet for sale. Uh, North Face has produced a moon parka. I believe you can purchase it. It costs $1,000. So if you really are interested in spider silk, you can drop some coin and get that. My third article for today is also on materials. Salt-infused graphene creates an infrared cloaking device, published on August 3 at arstechnica.com. Ooh, fascinating. Cloaking and graphene. So graphene is another material that fascinates me, and it found its way into my new book, Project Gecko. It is a form of carbon, uh, which is a non-metallic solid element that occurs in all organic life. But graphene is the form of, is a form of carbon that exists at the nanoscale. It's invisible to the human eye. So you probably know carbon at the macro scale. It comes in two forms, graphite, or which is coal, uh, or diamonds. When scientists were finally able to see materials at the nanoscale in the 1980s, they began to discover new materials. Um, graphene was discovered in 2004. So what is graphene? It is a flat one atom thick sheet of carbon. So essentially one, one carbon atom uh, thickness. Because of this tiny dimension, so tiny, um, it's considered a two-dimensional material. Yes, there is a third dimension, but it's only one atom thick, so it's hardly even there. Um, graphene is even more versatile than spider silk. It's actually thought to be the strongest material known to exist, about 200 times the strength of steel. Um, and there's a fun overlap with spider silk. So I read a bit about some researchers at the University of Trento in Italy who fed spiders a diet partially comprised of graphene. And so these spiders produced silk, spider silk, that wound up being three times the strength 
and 10 times the toughness of spider silk that gets produced in the wild. So maybe there's some, some interaction um, here. But let's talk about salt-infused graphene and why it's so special, because I just love the idea of cloaking. What is cloaking? Making things invisible. Um, here we go again with, with um, superhero characters. So scientists have been working for a long time to create cloaking materials that redirect various waves on the electromagnetic spectrum and control how those waves interact with objects. So we see objects because light is reflected off of them. So if you could redirect the rays of light around an object, it would become invisible to our eye. But there are other um, electromagnetic spectrum waves like infrared, microwave, etc. So um, what if you could wear a suit that blocked infrared sensors? Remember, this is heat emission. So think um, night vision goggles. Um, essentially, if you were wearing a suit that blocked infrared sensors, then night vision goggles couldn't pick up your body, couldn't pick up the heat emissions of your body. So researchers are looking at graphene. They're, they made a thick graphene layer, and thick is 100 to 150 graphene sheets thick. That's still very, very thin. And then they placed a thin coating of ionic fluid, fluid which is also liquid, which is called liquid salt, on the outside of the graphene layer, making the material reflect rather than absorb infrared red light and therefore camouflaging heat. The material is flexible and can be worn. Um, so that's kind of interesting. All right, let's turn to bionic bug. Last week, Lara visited the Botox clinic and found out about a missing shipment of Botox. At the clinic, she ran into her ex-boyfriend, Rob, and he told her who prescribed the antibiotics to Sully. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 18, The Fiddler. As Laura and Vic traversed the narrow streets of Foggy Bottom, she made a quick call to Detective Sanchez to fill him in on her new leads. The neighborhood, home to George Washington University, crawled with college students going to and from their afternoon classes. The students clutched their coffee cups in one hand and their smartphones in the other, often not looking where they were going. Others spoke into the air, writing emails or texting using voice recognition software. To avoid a collision, Lara and Vic had to weave around them. She cringed while delivering the news to Sanchez about beatific creations tip and the information the doctor who prescribed Sully the antibiotics fully expecting another shouting match. Glad to have timely info for once, the detective spared her the usual scorn, gave her his blessing to interview Anita about the prescription, and promised to check in with the Virginian police about the missing Botox shipment. He even offered to fill in Rob on the new lead. Exactly what I was hoping. There was always a method to her badness. I'm not in a mood to talk to my ex again. As she ended the call with Sanchez, Lara contemplated John Fiddler's role in the homicide case. Even if Fiddler had nothing to do with her friend's death, she was certain finding him was key to identifying Sully's killer. Maybe Anita could shed some light on his whereabouts. When the crosswalk light illuminated, Lara stepped into the street. The squealing of tires made her pause. A black B&W convertible careened around the nearby corner and raced toward them at high speed. She pushed Vic out of the way. As she spun around to hop back up onto the curb, she tripped over her own foot and fell toward the street. A hand grabbed her bandaged arm and tugged her so hard she stumbled up the curb onto the sidewalk, landing squarely onto her knees. Seconds later, the BMW hurtled within inches of the back of her feet. A heavy gust followed, sending dirt and exhaust into Lara's face. Reeling from the momentum, Vic fell backward on the sidewalk and landed on his free arm. Lara inspected herself. 
The pressure of Vic's hand on her burning arm stung and throbbed, but she had no further injury, and the bandages were intact. That was too close for comfort, Vic said, sitting on the cement and clinging to his arm, which had a nasty, bloody scrape. He rocked back and forth, grimacing as he inspected the injury. Are you okay? Lara asked. I'm not entirely sure. I hit my elbow on the pavement when I fell. There was a weird cracking sound in my head. Lara, I think I busted up my arm pretty badly. Vic's eyes watered, and he bit the inside of his cheek. Curious bystanders had already gathered around them, some to ask if they were okay, and others with their phones out apparently filming the accident. Lara looked down at her knees, both of which were scraped and bleeding through the newly made tears in her jeans. Well, aren't we a pair, she chuckled. The two of them certainly had their share of bad luck lately. Within minutes, the siren of an ambulance blared nearby. She assumed it was heading toward the university hospital located right around the corner, but the bus screeched to a halt right in front of them. Oh, that's for us? Someone must have called 911. She glanced at the crowd standing around them, but didn't see anyone take responsibility. Two EMTs jumped out of the ambulance, one with a bag of medical supplies and the other with a stretcher. What happened here? We nearly got run over by a car. They ran a red light, Lara said, trying to catch her breath as she dabbed her knees with Kleenex from her purse. Her injured arm pulsated angrily and her chest tightened. She had not yet recovered her full lung capacity since the fire. That's not possible. Self-driving vehicles are programmed to stop at red lights, the EMT said. Lara scowled at him for stating the obvious. Well, this one didn't stop, so either the software failed or someone drove the car manually. Ma'am, that would be illegal. Exactly, she said, brushing his hands away. I'm fine, but I think he might have a broken bone. Let me just bandage up your knees, miss. We can't have you getting an infection. The city is a dirty place. Lara rolled her eyes, but let him clean her up. What happened to your arm? He pointed to the bandages. Oh, just a burn from another accident, Lara said. The EMT shrugged and got right to work, cleaning, disinfecting, and bandaging the scrapes on her knees. The other medic attended to Vic, stating that he should take a ride to the hospital for an x-ray and confirm the suspected fracture. Load him up, the medic said. Lara watched as they helped Vic onto the stretcher. Lara, you go on without me, Vic said, his shoulders slumped and his face downcast, looking miserable. Trust me, I'll be fine. Come meet me at the hospital after you're done, but please, could you stay out of trouble for once? Lara frowned. Okay, but only if you're sure... It didn't quite feel right letting him go to the hospital alone, but Lara desperately needed to talk to Anita Fiddler to get some answers. Vic had already emailed her a rundown on what he found online. Lara opened the email as the ambulance ro- drove off and began to read. Anita was a 33-year-old family physician who'd studied medicine at George Washington University. From her online presence, Anita didn't appear to have a husband or any children. Given her age, Lara assumed she must be John Fiddler's daughter. Lara hustled toward the address of the small medical practice located on the side street near the university hospital. Her knees protested every second of the five-minute walk to the Fiddler's offices. The placard read, Johnson and Moore Family Practice. Huh. Staring up at the sign, she scratched her head for a moment. Where's Dr. Fiddler's name? She double-checked the address. Well, this is the right address. Perhaps Anita had not yet made partner. Lara surveyed the brownstone surrounded by the taller, more modern buildings. She walked up the steps and rang the buzzer. Good afternoon, a voice called out through the intercom. Hi, my name is Lara Kingsley. I'm here to see Dr. Fiddler, Lara said into the speaker. 
The door buzzed promptly, allowing Lara to walk into the building. The hallway had old hardwood floors, just like Lara's townhouse, and a winding staircase leading up to the second floor. The main part of the practice was located on the first floor, with a reception desk in the waiting room directly off the entry hall. A young woman with long, mousy brown hair and glasses looked up and smiled at Lara. Then her eyes drifted down to the bloodstains on Lara's jeans, and her smile disappeared. The name tag on her shirt said Lindsay. Dressed in preppy clothing and holding a college chemistry textbook, Lindsay had the look of student working part-time to help fund her studies. Um, Miss Kingsley, do you have an appointment? Lindsay asked, scanning the scheduling book with her finger. Lara shook her head. No, I'm a private investigator working a homicide for the D.C. police. Dr. Fiddler treated the victim before he died, and I have a few questions. Oh, Lindsay's face became serious. She stepped out for a few minutes. I think she'll be back shortly. You can have a seat right there while I text her to see where she is. Lindsay pointed to a row of plastic chairs lined up under a big picture window. Outside, a silver Honda pulled up, and a stunning woman with Scandinavian roots stepped out. She recognized her from the headshot on the website, though the picture hadn't done her justice. Dr. Fiddler was an extraordinarily beautiful woman, tall and trim. Her blonde hair and blue eyes were framed by high cheekbones and peachy skin. Minutes later, Anita appeared in the doorway of the waiting room, even before Lara had a chance to sit down. She walked over, greeted Lara, and shook her hand firmly. Please follow me, Miss Kingsley. My office will be a good place to chat. Looking past her beauty, Lara detected a deep sense of melancholy in her eyes, as if she'd lived decades beyond her real age. She followed the doctor down the Victorian-style hallway on the first floor, the old floorboards creaking under her feet. She entered the large office with generous windows opening onto a small, lush courtyard in the back of the townhouse. Dark-stained wooden bookshelves lined the walls around Dr. Fiddler's ornate mahogany desk. Medical texts and journals filled each shelf. Anita motioned for Lara to take a seat in the leather chair across from hers. As Lara sank deep into the cushy chair, a strange necklace hanging around Anita's neck caught her eye. At the end of the silver chain hung a scarab beetle pendant covered in what appeared to be Egyptian hieroglyphics. A rich, sweet, rich, sweet, calming scent filled the air from the incense burner on Anita's desk, tickling Lara's nose. My assistant told me you're investigating a homicide of one of my patients, Anita asked. Yes, I'm Lara Kingsley of Kingsley Investigations. I'm supporting Detective Mario Sanchez's investigation into the murder of Phil Sullivan. Lara watched Anita's face for any recognition, but the doctor didn't show any recollection of Sully's name. I don't think I have a patient by that name, Anita said, rubbing her forehead. We found an antibiotic prescription of Mr. Sullivan's with your name on it. Anita wrinkled her forehead and closed her eyes as if she was searching the recesses of her memory. When her eyes popped open, Anita folded her hands on her lap and nodded. Phil Sullivan. Ah, yes, now I remember. I prescribed the medication as a favor to my father. Mr. Sullivan was working for him in some capacity. When did you prescribe Mr. Sullivan the medication? Lara asked. Anita tilted her head. I actually never met him. My father wanted to have the medicine on hand a couple months ago in the event that Mr. Sullivan accident was accidentally exposed to something in his lab. So he must have gotten the prescription bottle from your father? Anita nodded slowly, her eyebrows knit together, her consciousness seeming to be somewhere else. She reached up and fidgeted with the beetle pendant, rubbing it in circles with her thumb. Finally, she looked at Lara. Her face had grown paler in a few seconds since Lara's question. Anita cleared her throat. Did he die of a bacterial infection, she asked. 
Lara shook her head, watching the door closely, trying to figure out what was going on inside of her head. Would antibiotics you prescribed be effective for treating the plague? Anita's eyes went a little wide, and she sat up in her chair. Her hand dropped into her lap, leaving the beetle to rest on its chain. You don't think my father was working with Yersinia pestis, do you? I'm not sure. Sully, Lara stopped when Anita pressed her lips together and leaned forward, with confusion written all over her face. Sorry, I mean Mr. Sullivan. Anyway, he appears to have picked up the plague, but I don't know how he got it. That's why I'm here. We need to... We need help to figure out exactly why he died. Talking to your father would be helpful. Anita hesitated and broke eye contact. I don't really see him anymore. He doesn't like to see people, not even his family. Over the past year, he's gone off the grid. I'm not even sure where he's living at the moment. Anita spoke too fast, too dismissively. And whereas before she gripped the armrests of her chair, she now gestured nervously. What are you holding back? Lara followed Anita's gaze toward the corner of her office, where an old, clunky desktop computer and a boxy tube-style monitor sat on a small desk. It had been years since Lara had seen such a computer, and the last time had been in a museum exhibit. What is Anita using that old thing for? Lara turned her eyes back to Anita and leaned forward. We really need to speak to your father. Any information you can give us, anything at all, would be a big help. Anita paused, opened her mouth as if to speak, but closed it again. She repeated this twice more before she spoke. He's not in any trouble, is he? No, I'm trying to figure out what Mr. Sullivan was doing for your father before someone murdered him. Lara intentionally neglected to mention that Anita's father was a person of interest in the case. She seemed like a nice woman, and Lara didn't like lying to her, but she needed information. Well, every other week we have coffee and I give him his mail. When will you see him next? Lara asked carefully, staring at her notebook. Play it cool. Don't scare her off. We're scheduled to see each other next Monday. What sort of job does your father have? Lara scribbled notes, recording everything Anita said. This was going better than she thought it would go, and she didn't want to miss anything. None that I know of. He's been retired for a couple of years now. He just tinkers in his, around in his shop on occasion. When he asked for the prescription, I was actually surprised to learn he's working in a lab again. When did your father retire? Anita looked away. It's actually embarrassing. He was fired from his last job. What did he do? He worked for more than 30 years as a molecular biologist at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases up at Fort Detrick. I think he specialized in genetic engineering. He didn't talk much about his work since it was top secret and all. Why did he get fired? I'm not sure. Hearing more, hearing about the U.S. Army reminded Lara of the newspaper clipping. She couldn't recall specifically what jogged her memory. Is he still married? Anita's face fell. No, my mom died two years ago. Lara had a hunch and she decided to go with it. Do you have a picture of your father? One you could give me? Anita's eyes widened. Why do you need a picture? I thought this was about Mr. Sullivan. Well, I knew Mr. Sullivan quite well. Maybe I've seen him with your father. Lara knew the truth would scare her off. Again, I'm just trying to understand the nature of their relationship. Any information might help us catch the killer. Anita walked over to her bookshelves. She paused for a few minutes and then pulled a book off her shelf, which looked like an old travel guide for Australia. From the book's spine, Lara could tell it originated from a library. Anita flipped it open to the front page, pulled out an old photo, and handed it to Lara. This was my father at 50. He's aged some, but... 
He's pretty much looks the same as he did then. Yes, I might have seen him before, Lara said. The photo looked familiar, and she remembered exactly where she'd seen it before. Fiddler's hair was mousy brown color with patches of gray, and his eyes were light gray, blue-gray. A curious look on his face suggested he just asked the photographer a question. How does your father support himself without a job? Lara asked. He inherited quite a bit of money from his mother and invested it wisely. She died when he was young. He never told me much about his childhood. It was too painful for him, I think. Dead mother? Orphan who inherited large sum? It's too close to be a coincidence. Has your father ever changed his name? The usual adrenaline rush that accompanied a revelation made Lara perk up a bit a little. Anita furrowed her brow. Not that I know of. Did your father play the violin? Lara's heart pounded. Anita's face lit up. Why, yes, he did. He used to be an amazing violinist. He could have played professionally. It's been a while, though. Does the name Spielmann ring a bell? Anita thought for a moment, but then shook her head. No, not at all. Should it? Lara didn't need any further information. John, Jan Spielmann and John Fiddler were one and the same. As she wrote an equal sign between the names in her notebook, the meanings of the names hit her squarely in the face. Spielmann was Dutch for Fiddler, and they both played the violin. Duh. The facts were right in front of her the whole time. That must be why Sully hid those newspaper clippings. He wanted me to learn the truth. I'm curious, Lara said, pointing to the scarab beetle necklace around Anita's neck. Where'd you get that necklace? Anita looked down at her chest and smiled slightly. My father gave it to me. Said it would ward off evil spirits. Lara paused for a moment. When Anita moved her head forward, a family photo on the bookshelf behind her came into view. It appeared to be of Anita, her husband, and her son. Does your father spend any time with his grandson? Lara asked. Anita's face went slack, and she became silent. Her eyes welled up with tears. My son is dead, and I'd rather not talk about it right now. She grabbed for a Kleenex and blew her nose. The tears started falling, and her sniffles increased in intensity. Lara shuffled her feet and closed her eyes for a moment. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Poor woman. Ugh. Me and my big mouth. Hey, can we finish this another time? Okay? Lara said. Anita nodded and turned away. I think that's best, she said. Of course, Lara said. I'll come by again soon. The doctor didn't say anything more, only walked to her, to her window with her hand over her mouth, tears trickling down her face. Lara was convinced Anita could help unravel the mystery behind Fiddler, which could lead to solving Sully's murder. But for now, the doctor was too distressed to be of much help. I'm sorry about your son, Lara said again as she slipped out the door. Lara weaved through the crowd at the entrance to the hospital. The automatic sliding doors whooshed open for patients, visitors, and staff. An ambulance pulled up outside and medical personnel raced to the door, forcing Lara to jump out of the way. Seconds later, EMTs wheeled a patient into the ER. She detested everything about hospitals. The intensity of emotions on people's faces, the jarring sounds, the disgusting smells, and the sick people coughing up their germs everywhere. Lara followed the signs to the ER where Vic was being treated for a broken elbow. He's been texting her with minute-by-minute updates, albeit with one hand and the messages were full of typos. She felt bad for leaving him alone. Waking up to the admission desk, walking up to the admission desk, Lara said to the nurse, I'm here to see Vikram Abhe. He came in with a broken elbow. Are you family? The nurse asked, looking her up and down. Lara shook her head. 
Family only. The nurse glared at her and looked looked down at the digital charts briefly. The doctor is finishing up with Mr. Abhay. You may wait over there. Lara turned away from the desk and walked over to the row of beat-up chairs along the wall. When she sat down, the feet of the chair slid an inch, making a loud screeching sound and startling the other people in the waiting area. The nurse looked up and frowned at her. Several seats over, a woman used a plastic trash can to vomit. Lara shuddered as the sour, tomato-like odor wafted past her, causing her to gag. Incessant scratching of a pen on paper as an elderly man filled out paperwork, and a crying child nagging his mother for apple juice added to the unwelcoming atmosphere of the hospital. A desperate urge to walk out rose within Lara, but she couldn't leave Vic there by himself. She wrapped her arms around her body, terrified of touching anything. Lara texted Vic, I'm in the waiting room. Evil nurse lady won't let me come see you. Her cell phone buzzed. She thought the message was from Vic, but it was a text from an unknown caller. Meet me in one hour at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. I will be in the last confessional. Don't be late. Her heart racing, Lara jumped up from her seat. She began pacing up and down the waiting room and biting her nails. She didn't leave now. She'd be late for the meeting. But she couldn't leave Vic behind without an explanation. This could be the breakthrough I need in the case. Lara texted Vic. Hey, something urgent has come up with Stalkerman. I feel really bad, but I should go. Vic texted her back. I don't want you going off alone again. We were just nearly killed. Lara rubbed her forehead and sighed. She didn't like being babied. Sorry, I'll pay for your cab, okay? And your medical expenses. Vic texted. It's okay, Lara. Remember, you don't have any money. Lara texted back. I'll let you know when I find out. Lara pocketed her phone and raced out the hospital as guilt pricked her conscience, conscience for leaving Vic alone. He was the only family she had left now, and Sully was dead. The street outside was crowded for the rush hour, but she quickly spotted an empty driverless cab. She swallowed her discomfort and got inside. The people she cared about were being targeted. There's no way I'm losing anyone else. She instructed the cab to take her where the stalker would be waiting. She was ready to do whatever it took to close the case, find Sully's killer, and protect the people she loved. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. See you next week.